Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right. Hey, welcome to Liquid, everybody. My name's Tim, one of the pastors here, and uh, we are so excited you're with us for our series, RTD, Religiously Transmitted Diseases. Uh, Liquid is one church, but we meet in multiple locations all around New Jersey. So would you welcome our brothers and sisters who are watching with us, or maybe you're online even, or listening via podcast. Glad that you're here. We're still kind of celebrating Easter weekend. We just had an incredible, amazing weekend. All told, we had 682 people stand up to publicly pray and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is awesome. That's like a revival, man. It was absolutely incredible. You can see the video there. People at all different campuses standing up, really publicly proclaiming, saying, you know what? I need grace. I need God's radical forgiveness for my sin. And it, was, and it was amazing. I also want to put your mind at ease because uh, you probably saw a guy in a yellow hazmat suit uh, in your church lobby. There was not a toxic spill, but we are scanning some of you. You're infected with an RTD, but we're going to kick him out. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, the guys who sacrifice and sweat their butt off for Jesus. Let's hear it for them. Appreciate that. Uh, if you're not careful, if you stick around any church long enough, you can pick one up. That's one of the fears of people who want to become Christians. They say, no, am I going to break out in hives of hypocrisy uh, or lesions of legalism? You could even pick up a performance pathogen if you're not careful. The truth is, it's very easy to get infected with an RTD that'll make your soul sick. But here's the good news. There is a cure. There is a treatment. And it is the very liberating gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you receive Jesus as your Savior, here's what you need to know, the good news. You, Jesus did not come to, uh, to start another religion. He came to offer us a relationship with God, not based on guilt, but based on grace. Amen? Amen. That's the good news, and it really is liberating. And so what we're going to do now for a few weeks is we're going to call out some of the most common religiously transmitted diseases that have infected the American church. And today we're going to tackle the toxin known as hypocrisy. In fact, did you know that's the number one complaint of people who don't attend church or people who are kind of hostile to Christianity say, well, you know what? I don't go to church. The church is full of hypocrites. But I saw a church sign recently that I thought was, was pretty clever. It read this. This church is not full of hypocrites. We always have room for more. I was like, man, that's honest, right? That's awesome. Uh, the truth is every church is full of hypocrites because it's full of humans, including this church and starting with yours truly. There really are moments that we all have, right, where our walk does not match our talk, where there's a gap between what we say and then actually what we do. And that's tragic because according to a recent survey, religious hypocrisy is the number one reason that young adults are leaving the church today in droves. In the book, Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, a survey was taken of young adults between the ages of 16 and 29, and it found that a whopping 85% of young adults surveyed say they perceive evangelical Christians as hypocritical, saying one thing but doing another. In other words, in church, Christians preach about a God of love and acceptance, but in the real world, they're the first ones to criticize people or find faults, or express judgment for people who aren't like them. The survey says Christians often project a squeaky clean image and champion these kind of high moral values, but then actually just fail to live them out in their personal life. In the survey, a young woman named Victoria is 24 years old. Here's how she shared her experience. She said, everyone in my church gave me advice 
about how to raise my son, but a lot of the time, they seem to be reminding me that I have no husband. And besides, most of them were not following their own advice. It made it hard to care what they said. They were not practicing what they preached. That's a good working definition of hypocrisy, not practicing what you preach. In fact, Jesus is the one who came up with that very definition in Matthew chapter 23, where he kind of famously tore into the legalists and hypocrites of his day, the Pharisees. Seven times, Jesus calls them out with these devastating words. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, you and Pharisees, you what? Say it together, hypocrites. Now I want to tell you, this is not Jesus meek and mild. When it comes to hypocrisy, Jesus gets fired up. He uses some pretty sharp language. He says, you hypocrites. It's worse than that. He calls them blind guides. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. You're a brood of vipers. What's a viper? A snake, a symbol for who? Satan. In other words, pastors, you're the spawn of Satan. This is very offensive language. And it's interesting because if you spend time in scripture, you see Jesus is like full of mercy and compassion and grace to sinners. It's the broken, it's the wounded, the outcasts and raw affairs. He has infinite patience and mercy for the ugly, poor, and broken but he reserves his harshest language and most, most damning words for self-righteous church people. The religious leaders who preached one thing, but practiced another. And that's because he knew how toxic this RTD can be to authentic faith. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the last thing you wanna be is a hypocrite. So I wanna read Matthew 23 together. You can turn in your Bible or flip in your phone. We'll also put it in the program notes today. But we're going to see what we can learn about the signs, symptoms, and cure for this religiously transmitted disease. Let's look at Matthew 23. Here's what it says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but what? Say this together. Do not do what they do, for they do not what? Practice what they preach. Now, the Pharisees were the ultimate religious people or of the Jews during Christ's life on earth. They had a very strict obedience to Scripture, very rigid rules. And they essentially were the the back-to-the-Bible movement of Jesus' day. And so Jesus starts out by complimenting them. He says, Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That's a compliment. Because in the Old Testament, Moses basically would sit on the seat, and then all the people of God would come to him with their problems. Moses would judge them. And in other words, he would tell them, here's what God wants you to do in this situation. He would communicate the Ten Commandments. He'd read from God's law, and he'd teach the people. And Jesus is like, whenever the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and they teach from God's word, not their interpretation, from God's word, be sure to do what they say. But do not do what they do. Why? Because they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to what? Lift a finger to move them. See, the Pharisees did not just teach from the Bible, from the Ten Commandments. Over the years, they had added thousands and thousands of additional rules and regulations In other words, they hoped to make it impossible for people to sin. And they added all these man-made rules. For example, you guys have probably heard the original commandment, honor the Sabbath, right? Keep it holy. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is why we're here in church. It's a day of rest that God gives as a gift to his people. Well, the Pharisees said that's a good commandment. But then they went and added 1,521 restrictions of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, like watching football. 
No, just kidding. But listen to this. This is a true one. One Pharisaical law actually said it forbid women from looking in a mirror on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Pharisees said she may see a gray hair in her head and be tempted to pluck it out. And that would be considered work, okay? Some of you ladies are like, that's not work. That's just routine maintenance, you know, kind of thing. But basically, they took the Sabbath, which was a day of rest, and turned it into a day of legalistic ritual and anxiety. Am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing this? In fact, when Jesus healed a man who was uh, crippled on the Sabbath in church, they accused Jesus of breaking the law. They're like, that's terrible that you healed him in church because you are now doing work. And that's when they decided to kill Jesus. Talk about focusing on like the letter of the law and not the spirit. See, for Pharisees, faith is all about external behavior, not the heart behind it. That's the number one symptom of hypocrisy where you emphasize the externals. If you're taking notes, you can fill that in. See, to the Pharisees, that book you hold in your hand, the Bible, is a rule book. It is a set of rules that must be kept at all costs. And in their mind, who's God? God is the cosmic cop. He is the divine law enforcement official in the sky who makes very strict demands and is ready to whack anybody who steps out of line. But in contrast, Jesus says, who's God? God is your Abba or your daddy, very intimate family term. In other words, it's not about rules, it's about this relationship. God is your father. He's the father of all mercy, full of compassion, abounding in love. And Jesus says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart. In other words, your father is concerned about your inner motivation, not just your external behavior. But for the Pharisees, when they came to church on a Sunday, faith had become a show, a performance. Look at verse 5. He says, everything they do is what? Done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Those were like the boxes. You ever see Orthodox Jews? They wear boxes that they have scripture inside of them. They wrap it around their arms. They make their phylacteries wide so people can see they're into the scripture. And the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They got the VIP section. They love to be greeted with what? Respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi or teacher by others. In other words, titles are important. This is hard for us to imagine because right in the 21st century, but in Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees walked into the temple and they were like rock stars. They're like, there they are, the Pharisees, the spiritual celebrities. They would wear those wide phylacteries. And it would be the equivalent of someone walking in here with a big King James Version Bible. And it's got all these post-it notes falling out and, and he's got a pack of highlighters up here. And like, whoa, this guy is serious, okay? Very impressive, spiritual superstar here. But everything they did, Jesus said, was for show. They would go out into the marketplace and pray so that people would hear their lofty prayers. And they, they basically, worship was about impressing people and faith became a performance. And that's symptom number two if you have this RTD. You have mixed motives. In other words, you say you're doing something for God, but the reality is you're trying to bring glory to who? Yeah. Yourself. This is a very ugly thing. This is a hard, hard thing. It's like looking in the mirror. In Mark 7, Jesus said this, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about, you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their what? Hearts are far from me. In Jesus' mind, where does faith begin? Right here. It begins in the heart. Is your spirit humble or is it proud? Look at me. Is God on your lips or is something darker in your heart? I remember my first exposure to hypocrisy growing up in church. The church I went to was pretty traditional. People dressed in a suit and tie. 
which if you're 10 years old, you love that action, right? Uh, but, you know, choir with robes and organ. We sang hymns. I'm actually very grateful for my upbringing there. But I remember there's this one lady in her 60s who was kind of like the lead soloist. So, like, what would happen every Sunday is we'd sing a couple songs, and then it'd be like, and now for special music. And she would come on stage, and she'd have her choir robe. She kind of looked like one of those opera ladies. She was, like, kind of wide. Big robe and, like, had this, like, you know, gold, you know, sash around her and everything. And she sang beautifully, but it was like, it was literally like opera. She'd be like, Jesus. And like the stained glass would like, like kind of crack. And it was so funny because like, you know, it's a small church, like 150 people. And like nobody else can sing. And uh, so, at, you know, Christmas when there's like musicals, they're like, we're going to have an open casting call and auditions. I wonder who's going to sing, right? Everyone for 17 years, she was always the lead kind of worship diva. So I remember one Saturday after church, I'm 10 years old. My parents are like talking after service. So my friends and I, we got to the parking lot to play hide and seek. So we're hiding in between the cars and stuff. And I crouch down low behind this one car. And I see the worship diva. She's walking out with kind of all of her minions uh, around her. And, uh, and they walk over and I'm like, oh gosh. And I say down and say, go, her car's right next to the one I'm hiding behind. And when they get there, I'm like, oh, you know, don't say anything. And I literally hear her say, she said, well, could you believe what Becky was wearing today? She looked like a tramp, didn't she? And then another one of the ladies said, oh yeah, I heard Herb is gonna walk out on her. Oh, she must be trying to pick up somebody else. Well, not if she looks like that, honey. And gone, da, 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 da. Slicing and dicing another woman in the choir. And I was, sh- I'm like 10 years old, I'm like, mm. <laughs> the lead worshiper is also the lead gossip. <laughs> and it was my first introduction to religious hypocrisy. I was 10 years old and it surprised me because Just moments before I had seen this woman on stage singing about Jesus, but in the parking lot acting like Judas, (laughs) stabbing her friend in the back. Very rude awakening and woke me up to this sad reality that a lot of Christians, we act and talk one way in church, but another outside its walls. And of course, Jesus gets the black eye. In my teens, I remember hypocrisy exploding onto the television in the 1980s. You may remember Jimmy Swaggart, a televangelist famous for preaching holiness and railing against sexual sin, but then caught privately visiting prostitutes. If you uh, grew up in the 80s, you'll never forget his tearful confession on on television, I've sinned against you. And then he was caught with a prostitute again in the 1990s, but he kind of changed his tone a little. He said, the Lord told me to tell you it's none of your business, you know? In the early 2000s, Ted Haggard was the, um, the, the former head of the National Association of Evangelicals. And he was a guy who was very involved in the culture wars. He publicly led the charge against gay marriage until he was caught in a hotel room with a male prostitute doing crystal meth together. National disgrace. Tore his church apart. We have examples of hypocrisy all over the religious world. This weekend, my wife and I watched Spotlight, which won the Academy Award for uh, Best Film this year, it's about journalists who uncover a pattern of sexual abuse by Catholic priests in Massachusetts, but then the systematic cover-up by the Boston Archdiocese. In other words, they chose protecting pedophiles over protecting children. More and more, guys, this is the public perception of Christianity, that the church is a breeding ground for hypocrisy. And it is sobering, and it is deadly. John Stott wrote, what cancer is to the body hypocrisy is to the church. It is a killing agent, one of the most deadly RTDs. And that's why Jesus hits it head on with these devastating words. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, which is super harsh 
But I could already, I could even see, like, you don't really, because this is sanitized language. The Bible translators have, like, kind of toned it down. We don't get what this really means. Like, to say woe to somebody was like, <laughs> woe does not mean woe, okay? Woe is very different here. Woe, it's the opposite of saying, hey, God bless you. It's actually saying, God curses you. God damns you. Jesus is like, damn you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're all going to hell. What? Pretty provocative statement. He gives him a kick in the batteries, and he does it seven times. Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to enter. In other words, if they have any interest, they snuff it out. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Jesus, meek and mild. What? Is it any wonder the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus? He is not winning friends with this kind of preaching. He's like, you pastors, you're going to hell, and you're taking others down with you. Now, never forget this. Sinful people, they flock to Jesus. Why? They felt his love, his forgiveness, his acceptance, and they loved him in return. The saints, not so much. For the Pharisees, there's no grace. Jesus reserves the battering ram of truth. And he's in constant conflict with their external emphasis on rules and regulations because there was no relationship. This is the essence of man-made religion where you are attempting to earn the applause of man and the acceptance of God by playing a part in a religious charade. In fact, did you know that's where the word hypocrite comes from? This is so fascinating. The word hypocrite is actually a theatrical term from the Greek world that simply means putting on a mask. That's where we get it from. Greek actors were called hypocrites. And Jesus borrowed the word to describe somebody who puts on a face to make a good impression. I'm coming to church today, right? Here is actually how it worked in the theater, okay? The way Greek actors did this is they'd start out the play. You'd only have a few actors, but they also play multiple parts. So a guy would come out with a happy face on. He'd sing a song or something. But then he'd disappear, and he comes out like, oh, I'm so sad. I'm so sad. He would wear a different face to show like he's crying and make people feel, you know, sad about that. But then he'd come out of another place, and he'd be like, I'm so angry with you. He's all chagrined and everything. Or if the play was, play was a romance, they'd have a mask, you know, to make people, I'm in love, Leonardo, you're beautiful, you know, whatever it was. And the Greek actors were literally, their name, their names were hypocrites. That's what it was called. It was a job. It meant somebody who wears two or more faces. And over the years, that term hypocrite became known as two-faced. You two-faced hypocrite. It refers to somebody who's good at wearing a mask and pretending to be something they are not. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is the first one to ever use the term hypocrite this way. So he's calling the Pharisees. He's like, you guys are actors. You guys are two-faced hypocrites. You wear a religious mask that appears all shiny and happy and holy on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of it. <laughs> Hidey hole. That's... <laughs> <laughs> and now some of you are judging me for watching South Park. I know. Okay. This is what I discovered when I was 10 years old. Look, look at this. This is what I discovered. I watched the church soloist smile and sing about Jesus. 
Jesus on stage. But out in the parking lot, we what was really in her heart came out. <laughs> she was full of it. The lead worshipers, the lead gossip. And this is the danger if you've been a Christian for a while, right? The truth is you can come to church and you can pick up the language. You can get used to playing the part. We know the lingo. We know what to say. Oh, God bless you, brother. How are things going? Great, you know, blessed and highly favored. How, how to hide if we're struggling. But Jesus reserves his sharpest language for religious leaders who wear a mask. He's like, you blind guys, you morons, you two-faced hypocrites, you're sons of hell. Some seriously fierce language. So you and I have to pay attention to this because I'm like, gosh, this is hard for me. I felt like I'm, you know, you know, I'm writing this message. I'm like, gosh, it's like looking in a mirror, you know? If I'm honest, I struggle with this daily and it seeps in so easily when you come to church. Can I ask, what mask are you tempted to wear when you come to church? What are you hiding from, okay? John Ortberg writes this. He says, if you wear a mask, if you get really good at figuring out what other people want and then delivering it, you perfect the art of projecting the right kind of image. And you may impress some people, but you won't make any friends. You see, the irony is we're all drawn to people who don't wear masks. We can't be fully loved until we are fully known. In other words, there's no way to love sincerely if you're wearing a mask. And how will they know we're Christians? They'll know we're Christians by our love. And that's the number one critique of Christians by non-believers. They say, Christians act so fake. They're so inauthentic. Like, they have it all together. They never struggle. They have this kind of spiritual Superman image that we all know is a sham. Jesus gives an example of that in verse 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. This is interesting. It's kind of a small thing, but it's like tithing, right? Giving 10% of your income back to God. They were so, like, they, they not only gave their income, they gave part of their kitchen spices they tithe. So it'd be like, if you're like, you know, you're making a pizza, I'm like, oh, here's a, you know, bottle of oregano. That's what mint, dill, and cumin were. You'd be like, oh, thank you for that, Pastor Tim. Now let me take out all the leaves and count them. Uh, nine for me, one, two for God, and then you put it in an envelope, licked it, sealed it, put it in the popcorn bucket. In other words, you're trying to show that like, oh, look at that, look at me, I'm being so generous. And this is what they do. They would tithe above and beyond to everything. They'd give alms to the poor when, and they'd make a big deal and people would be like, look how generous they are. And everyone was impressed, except for God. <laughs> it reminds me of a, a Seinfeld episode called the Calzone. You guys remember this one? Uh, George Costanza falls in love with this local pizza shop that makes calzones. So like every day Costanza goes, he goes to get a calzone and, uh, and he wants to like curry favor with the owner. Like, so maybe he could be first in line when he gets there. So what he does is he, he, when he gets his change, he says, I'm going to put a dollar in the tip jar and then he'll see me and really like me. But at the moment he puts a dollar in, the, the owner turns his back and doesn't see him give the tip. But George is like, I want credit for my generosity. Watch what happens. Number 49. You know, uh, my last name is Costanza. That's Italian. So uh, you and I are kind of like countrymen, yeah? Paisanos! <laughs> Six feet of your change. Ah, yes. And I always take care of my paisanos. So here's a little something. Antonio! Si! Vieni qua! Questa miserable pastorale No, sono andato qua! Aspetta, guarda l'altro! Hey! Hey! You steal my money? No, 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 you don't understand. I, I wasn't trying to take it no, out. No, I know what you tried to do. No, no, no. Get out of here. Don't but, come back here again, no, ever! No, no, no. I'm you! Classic Seinfeld, right? Get out of, no calzones for you. The question, is God impressed when we give to get something in return? Of course not. In fact, he's disgusted by it. That's what Jesus is saying. 
He goes, you guys focus on these little superficial, trivial displays of generosity, but you have neglected the more important matters of law. Let's read this together. Justice, what else? Mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Pharisees actually had a strainer that they carried around. And when they got thirsty, they would pour drinking water through it to make, in case there was a gnat that fell into their bottle, because if they drank it, then we'd be unclean in God's sight. They literally focused on the smallest things and they swallowed a camel. They ignored the more critical issues that are close to God's heart. I know this sounds crazy, but we did this in my church growing up. There was a lot of emphasis on what was clean and unclean behavior for Christians. We had a saying, we're like, Christian boys don't drink, uh, smoke, or chew, and they don't go with girls who do. Can you imagine that? That's kind of, turn to your neighbor and, no, I'm not going to make you say that. (laughs) Symptom number three is legalism. In other words, there is a long list of extra biblical no-nos in our church growing up. It was like, okay, you're saved by grace, you're follower of Jesus, great. Now, no cursing, uh, no smoking, no drinking, no watching R-rated movies, or heaven forbid, listening to heavy metal. That is the devil's music, okay? None of, we're in fill in the blank, hip-hop music, whatever it is, right? Now, there's great principles here. You don't want to fill your body and your mind with, with you know, violence and sexuality. But they were elevated to this level of law. And I remember we had a, our youth pastor was like very strong against like, you know, listening to the devil's music and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, I can cl- remember this as clear as day in my head. My brother is five years older than me. And one Sunday night, he said, I want you to bring all of your rock music to church. And so my brother brought his Kiss albums. Anyone here old enough to remember Kiss, right? I mean, they painted themselves like the devil, the whole thing. I'll never forget this. I remember we took all the albums out to the back of the church parking lot and smashed them all with a hammer. That is a very vivid memory. And for 17 years in that church, however, I can't recall one sermon on racial injustice. Not one message on world hunger or or actually helping the poor. Why? Because we were too busy arguing about the length of hair and the length of skirts to speak up about global poverty or to combat genocide. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's like, woe to you, you hypocrites. You you give a tenth of your spices, you tithe on that little stuff, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice for the poor, mercy for those who are hurting, faithfulness to God. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. I'm not saying those things aren't important, you, that, those are, but they're the entryway to faith. They're ways of giving your heart to God. Can I ask, what small stuff do we obsess about today when the ongoing important matters we neglect that are really close to the Father's heart? I mean, like, do nose rings really matter? <laughs> you know, tattoos, right? Hip-hop music, whatever. Or, or is actually urban poverty in the inner city closer to God's heart? So you can give money to the poor and still fail to love them because you hold back what they really need, your heart. You hold back justice for the poor, mercy for the broken, faithfulness to God. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of what? Greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So according to Jesus, where does faith begin? Faith comes from the inside out. It starts in the heart. That means that when you become a Christian, the idea is you become so aware of your own sin and that there's no way of making yourself acceptable to God. And then you see Jesus who lives the perfect life 
And then he dies on the cross and he says, I'll make a trade. I'll take all your sin and I'm giving you all my righteousness. And you're like, what does this mean? It means that God now credits you with living the way Jesus lived. It's as if you never sinned and more, it's as if you always obeyed. That's how God treats you as a son or daughter. And you're like, grace, <laughs> it's awesome news. That's what happened on Easter. People felt grace and the love of God. But what happens is it suddenly becomes then about rule keeping and trying to earn it. The idea that that's supposed to then overflow out of your heart, guys. It senses you to the needs of others. You're like, I wanna show that kind of love. I wanna show that kind of generosity and your behavior follows. You don't actually have to fake it anymore. Because a faith that's fake, imposed from the outside in, it's toxic. It leads to duplicity. That study that I mentioned about born-again Christians also cites that our lifestyle is statistically equivalent to non-believers. In other words, when asked to describe their activities over the last 30 days, born-again believers were just as likely to bet or gamble, view pornography on their personal computer, drink alcohol till they got drunk, slander somebody behind their back, take revenge, lie to a friend. There was no statistical difference between those who confessed to be Christians and those who said, I want no part of Jesus. No statistical difference, which is ironic because a key symptom of hypocrisy is when Christians insist on projecting this picture-perfect image. No, we have no struggles, just strength, you know? You guys, we live in an Instagram faith kind of age. You guys know what Instagram's all about, right? How's that work? People take the best, most flattering pictures of themselves as possible, right? You're like, no double chins, I'm taking it up here, you know, kind of thing. And then you post it, a selfie that way. No, notice nobody ever posts a selfie like just after they wake up. Like, you know, there's like bags under your eyes, your hair's all jacked up, your breath stinks like hashtag reality, right? <laughs> That's how a lot of people view Christians. Shiny, happy people who like to project their life is perfect. Their family's perfect. They make no bad moral choices. They always do the right thing. And we try to project this Superman image that we think will score points or earn applause. And guys, it's not just in church. I know this is hard. I'm, it's like looking in a mirror. It's hard for me to say this. It happens in our homes. Let me throw myself under the bus, okay? God brought this to me this week. I'm like, oh, I'm a hypocrite. A couple months ago, I actually got busted for wearing a mask in our house. That's the problem, by the way, with being married and having kids. <laughs> they can smell it <laughs> a mile away, right? They know the real you. So my wife has a friend over for lunch, like a, a woman in her life group, and they're, it was my day off, so they're in the kitchen finishing lunch, and then I walk in, I'm like getting a cup of coffee, and they're done, so they're bringing their dishes to the sink and everything. I said, oh, let me take those for you, and I put them in the sink and run the water on them, and uh, Colleen's friend says, wow, that is so nice. Colleen, it must be nice to have a husband who helps with the dishes, right? And I'm like, all the time, and, uh, <laughs> and Colleen just like rolls her eyes, right? She knows, it's like pulling teeth, you know, to get me to help clean up. And so I'm like, no sweat, no sweat. In fact, I'll do all these dishes. You guys go chat, you know? And so they go into the living room. And so I'm there. But the problem is now I have no audience, right? And I got to do it. There's all these other dishes and stuff. So I start, you know, running it, banging the plates together, clattering the silverware. So like it kind of disrupts, just so no one misses the lunar eclipse. Tim's helping in the kitchen, you know? <laughs> I, just, this is so bad. Oh. I'm even sitting there and washing the dishes thinking, Maybe Carl will reward me later for doing the dishes now, you know? It's awful, I know, I know. But suddenly there's this problem because I get the whole dishwasher loaded up and it occurs to me, 
I have no clue where the soap goes. <laughs> like, I have no idea where you put the detergent in this, right? So we have one of those, like, you know, you put it in. And so Carl comes walking with her friend, and she's like, you have a problem, sweetheart? And I'm like, yeah, I, uh, I did the detergent, uh, you know. And she's like, oh, he does it all the time. He just gets forgetful. She opens the lid and sticks it in, you know, like busted. I did not receive a reward later, okay? <laughs> What, what, what happened here? My happy husband mask fell off, and she, everyone realized I was full of it. Hi, Listen, look, so can I ask, is there, mar- is, is there hypocrisy in your house, in your marriage, in your parenting? Parents, can I ask, what things do you tell your kids not to do, but you actually still do, <laughs> right? My, uh, Colin and I were talking about this, and we're like, because we make our uh, kids wear helmets, when they're riding their bikes and everything, but I never, I never wear one. We just didn't have a safety culture growing up. When I grew up, like your mom, you know, put you on the back, strapped you in a rubber band, and like you flopped around on the back of her bike, like going over a curb and everything when the kids, and when our kids were little, they never noticed, right? Like they would wear helmets, but I didn't wear one. But now my daughter's 13. She's like, dad, how come we have to wear a helmet and you don't? And I'm like, sweetheart, my hair is my helmet. I think we all, you know. Parents, let's, let's honestly, what things do you tell your kids not to do, but you actually do? Because they absorb everything. You know, you tell them not to curse, but then your language sends another message when you're in traffic or late. You know, do you tell them, hey, I, you, look at me, two eyes, don't ever, you never do drugs, you understand me? But then they watch you get buzzed every night after the second, third, fourth glass of wine or beer. Kids smell hypocrisy a mile away, and they absorb everything. And the pharisaical parent says, do as I say, but don't do as I do. Does your walk match your talk? Because what's inside your heart, guys, will eventually come out of your mouth. I know this is hard, right? This is painful. This is a kick in the batteries. And this is how Jesus finishes. Verse 27, look what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of what? Bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of what? Hypocrisy and wickedness. There is a gap between the inside and the outside. You may do the right thing, but you do it for the wrong reasons. Our motives are impure. It's not coming out of a heart of love and affection for God. It's for appearance only. And he compares it to whitewashed tombs, by the way, which if you ever visit Israel, the tombs there, they're actually quite beautiful. They are literally whitewashed. They are bleached by the sun. They're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's like, you know, zombie Christianity, right? Dead bones. How many of you watch The Walking Dead? You watch The Walking Dead, you're going to watch all that? Yeah, okay, I'm judging you right now. So that's cool. Uh, Not just a little. The outer appearance is alive. It's alive! But inside, they're dead. The spirit has left the building. Jesus gets so upset. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Gosh, this is not like feel good, happy Christianity. I was writing it this week, guys. and I had to repent. I'm like, gosh, I see this in myself. Guys, understand, does this make you glad for grace? The solution to sin is not religion, it's grace. The solution to sin is not to impose an even stricter code of behavior. It is to repent, in other words, rethink 
who God is and trust him. He is your loving father, abounding in love, faithfulness and grace and forgiving thousands upon thousands. And when you fall short, he doesn't condemn you. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Instead, you can actually go to him and you receive mercy and love and help in your time of need. That's how you go from two-faced to true-faced. This is how you drop the mask and you get real with God. Take a look at this list of symptoms. Where, where do you see yourself? You know, all of us can see ourselves somewhere. I understand that. And, I, and, and some of you right now, I'm like, man, I'm so glad, you know, Tim, you're preaching about this, man. I hate Pharisees, you know? I hate them. <laughs> now you're one, right? Author Philip Yancey tells about a Bible study he led on the person of Jesus. It led to the writing of his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And in one of his classes, the group began to discuss the legalism of some Christians, and they swapped war stories. And Yancey writes that he topped them all by sharing his own experiences at Moody Bible Institute in the 1970s. At the time in the 70s, Moody had a rule banning all facial hair. Couldn't have beards or anything like that. Yet Yancey says, every day, all of us students had to file past this large oil painting of Dwight L. Moody, the founder of the actual church and then the school, who had the biggest lumberjack beard and mustache and everything. And we lived past by him every day, you know, and everyone's kind of laughing at Yancey's story, except this one class member named Greg, who kind of, he seemed like offended and started fidgeting in his seat. And finally he raises his hand and Yancey says, he looked at me and he said, you know what, I feel like walking out of this place. You criticize others for being Pharisees, but I'll tell you who the real Pharisees are. They're you. And he points at Yancey. This is one of the most, foremost like, writers and apologists of our lifetime, Christian apologists. And the rest of you, you're all Pharisees too. He goes, you guys feel like you're so high and mighty and mature and spiritual. Listen, I became a Christian at Moody Church. And you guys find a group to look down on, to feel more spiritual than, and then you talk behind their backs. That's what a Pharisee does. You're all Pharisees. And Yancey writes these words. He says, all eyes in the class turned to me for a reply, but I had none to offer. He had caught us all red-handed. For in a twist of spiritual arrogance, we were now looking down on other people for being Pharisees. Eventually, Yancey and the rest of the class apologized to Greg, and fellowship was restored. But it, it goes to show you how sneaky an RTD hypocrisy is. Just when you think, well, gosh, I'm so glad I'm not a Pharisee, you know, like her. <laughs> now you are. <laughs> it's an RTD that gets transmitted and can affect every Christian daily. So how do you go? from two-faced to true-faced? That's the question I want to end with. How do you take off the mask and drop the act? And here's the answer. You're not going to like it. It's simple, but it's painful. You have to ask God to perform a pharisectomy. Okay? It is a... <laughs> some of the men just went, a far what? Oh, hey, hey, hey. Very painful procedure, all right? But this is asking God to surgically remove your inner Pharisee, and it's a two-step process. It begins with ruthless honesty. Before God, on the inside, at the heart level. You have to be brave enough to pray a bold prayer like King David did in Psalm 139. David prayed, search me, God, and what? Know my heart, test me, see if there be any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a bold prayer of exposure. David's like, I'm dropping the mask. I'm opening my heart. God, look at me, inspect me, test me, because I know there's something offensive in here. There's something ugly. And maybe as I've been talking today, you've suddenly started becoming aware of something problematic. At first, you're like, oh, this is such a good message for so-and-so. 
<laughs> I'm going to forward the link to her. She needs to hear this. But as I've been talking, you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> this is for me. There are parts of my life that are not in line with God's word. And there's parts of my faith where I've actually been faking it. Can we just have an honest moment? I mean, can, can I ask, like, you know, who, who am I fooling? Who have I been lying to? Who am I, who am I, you know, who am I, what am I pretending? Think of the deception right now in your life, the mask that maybe you put on even as you came to church today. Because look, it's easy to fake a relationship with God. You, you can totally fool me for sure. You can fool your friends. You can come to church. You can sing the songs. Maybe you mentor a middle school kid, but deep inside you're like, man, I know what I did this week and it wasn't so ha ha ha. I, you know what? I actually, truth be told, I looked at porn all week where I pushed the boundaries of my girlfriend last night. But then it's Sunday morning, so I came to church with a, hey, my mask on, and I faked my way through it. I don't know what, what, what it is, but you know what? You can fool me. You can fool all of us. You can even fool yourself. But guess what? You can't fool God. He's like, I know. I know you're full of it. There's hypocrisy in every heart, including my own. This sermon was so painful for me to write. It exposed so many areas in my own life. I actually had to stop writing the sermon three times this week to repent. <laughs> I was like, I had to repent as a parent. I had to repent as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend. And I actually had to pray this prayer. I said, God, search me, know me, test me, because I'm a guy who stands up in front of people. And the truth is there's, there's gaps in any believer's life, including mine. If I, if I had to stand up here and the only time I could preach is when my life was perfectly aligned in every single aspect with God's word, I'd never preach again. But healing begins by getting ruthlessly honest with God. Maybe the Holy Spirit is making you aware even now that there's a gap. Repent. You, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing, sometimes an hourly. What are we repenting of? We repent of our sin, and we rely on Jesus. We say, thank God. He doesn't accept me based on my performance, but on Christ. Amen? We open our heart. We say, God, I need a pharisectomy. Clean the inside of the cup. Here it is and renew a right spirit with me. That's the first step, ruthless honesty with God. But the second step is radical transparency with others. You have to drop the act, take off the mask, and trust others with who you really are. Flaws, weaknesses, and all. The good news, guys, is that the church is supposed to be like the one safe place in the world to admit we're all sinners in recovery. Perfection will never happen in this life. And the church is not a museum for saints. It's supposed to be a hospital for sinners. You and I are not worthy of God's love, but Jesus is, thank God. You and I don't have the strength, but Jesus does. That keeps us humble. That keeps us dependent on Christ and our community. And Christian community is a key step in healing an RTD. How do you know if you're a hypocrite? I don't want to condemn you. I don't want you to feel guilty or leave here feeling condemned. It's not if you struggle with sin. Everyone's, every Christian struggles with sin. But the hypocrite is the guy who tries to hide it behind his back and keep the smiley face on and singing the songs and saying the right things but your heart's not in it. James gives this command. He says this, confess your sins to who? Each other and pray for who? Each other so that you may be healed. Notice confession and healing happen in community. That's why we have small groups that meet during the week to share our struggles, to pray for each other. And if you're not in a group, why don't you join one this spring? I think you will find groups very refreshing because we have a no masks allowed policy. <laughs> We encourage our leaders, we say, lead with radical transparency because that's how transformation happens. When you bear your flaws and instead of finding judgment, you find you are loved and accepted unconditionally, then you have the power to change. Radical transparency means you're authentic. You don't have to fake faith with other believers. 
Can I ask you this? Can I ask you this? Do you have in your life, in your life, do you have brothers and sisters with whom you can drop the act, you can take off the mask, and be who you really are? Do you have those people in your life? Because if you're part of this church, man, I love that you come on Sunday. I love it. But understand, Sundays you can hide. Sundays, it can be quickly become a show because there's a large crowd. Everybody's on their best behavior, most of you. Uh, and there's always a temptation to perform or act a certain way. But in a small group, you got no choice. You got to open up your life and let others in the, and see the good, the bad, the ugly. And that's where you experience grace and healing. So in your groups this week, let me encourage you, trust God and others with who you really are and take the risk to be radically transparent, authentic. That's how transformation happens. See, just as powerful as hypocrisy is repelling people from Jesus, authenticity draws people to Jesus and sick souls experience healing. Amen? Here's what I want to do. I want to ask you this question. What's your next step right now? What's your next step today? I know I am not the only one here in need of a pharisectomy. And so what I want to do right now is have a holy moment. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? This is a moment, all our campuses, just to take off the mask where you are and get radically honest with God. Maybe it's time to tell him, you know what, I've been living a lie. There's, there's areas of my life that simply aren't in line with your word. And you're going to pray, Jesus, I need you to remove my inner Pharisee and clean the inside of my heart. It is totally okay to be honest in this moment. No one's going to judge you. Our church is full of recovering hypocrites like me. <laughs> and there's always room for more. So let's pray and get honest with God. Father, right now we come to you, sons and daughters, not worthy, but Father, asking for grace. Would you renew a right spirit in us as a church? God, we want to be known as an outpost of grace in your kingdom here in the Northeast. That when people come, they wouldn't see us, they wouldn't see religion, they'd see Jesus. Thank you, Father. Right now with all our heads bowed, we're going to pray that bold prayer that King David prayed, okay? We're going to pray the same words. I'm going to pray them out loud, then you can simply pray them out loud after me, one loud voice like we're one family, okay? Let's pray it together. Search me, O God. Test me, God. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. And forgive me now. I repent. Father God, right now we're confessing to you specifically areas that we fall short and we're thanking you for grace. Father God, I ask by the Holy Spirit right now that you would let us know that as we confess our sins, you are now faithful and just to forgive us completely. You're removing them as far as the east is from the west. But God, that's not it. Fill us now with the Holy Spirit. Renew our first love, a love for Jesus the Christ, your son. God, do a work of renewal in our church. Cut the hard parts away from our heart, the callous parts, and give us a heart of worship. We ask that all glory would go in one place. It would go directly to Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said together. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.